This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. One of my favorite voices in the Australian financial landscape, after you, of course. So yeah, I'm very excited to get stuck into this interview. Yes, likewise. It is our great pleasure to welcome Owen Raskovich to the show. How are you, Owen? I'm great, fellas. Thanks for having me on again. I've got to say, favorite voices. Wow. uh, (laughs) Yeah, so I'll take it. I've really pumped you up here, Owen, so don't (laughs) disappoint me now. (laughs) No pressure. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard you say any favorite voice other than Owen's. Well, if I I said everyone was my favorite voice, then no no one would be my favorite voice. It loses meaning, just like you say, every episode is exciting. Oh, well, no, that is true. I love doing this podcast and I'm always excited for these interviews. (laughs) So for those of you who have never come across Owen before. He's the founder of Rask Australia and lead investment analyst for Rask Invest, his members only share research service. Prior to founding Rask, Owen was an investment analyst at the highly regarded managed funds research business Zenith Investment Partners and also a writer and analyst for The Motley Fool Australia. He is also the host of two podcast series, the Australian Investors Podcast and the Australian Finance Podcast, two of Australia's top-ranked investing and finance podcasts, so definitely go and check them out. They are a fantastic listen. Owen also founded Rask Media, which is an investment news website attracting many thousands and thousands of people a month. And again, we recommend you go and check that out. A lot going on. Not busy at all, Owen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. uh, (laughs) I feel like I could have just said, 
you know, I just invest and I started a few things, maybe too many things. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, it's incredibly impressive what you're doing. We've been admiring your work for a long time and you have uh, obviously been on the show in some capacity before. You've come to our live events. So, you know, it's uh, it's great to have you on in its entirety in a full episode. We realised we actually hadn't had you on. Yeah, yeah. we've called you before. You've (laughs) presented at our live shows, but we realised we'd never actually interviewed you. So we've done a full, full episode. So... We're excited to get stuck into this because you're doing uh, some thank you. doing some interesting things at the moment, particularly in the small cap space, which we're excited to get stuck into. Yeah, thanks, guys. I just I haven't said it, but thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Before we uh, get into the meat of the interview, your background and some of the stuff you're doing today, we do like to start with a game, overrated or underrated. So we'll throw out some different themes and stocks and ideas and get your thoughts on them. And we'll start broad and we'll start overseas in the market that's capturing most of the headlines at the moment, overrated or underrated, the S&P 500 index? Underrated. Nice. Why is that? Oh, well, I was going to say, I love this little little segment, by the way, but I just think, <laughs> you know, businesses with all the free money that's getting poured into the system, um, it's pretty easy to see where it's going to go and that's going to go into more businesses and, and good companies. So underrated. It's going to go into multi-trillion dollar market cap companies at same yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they love free money as much as the rest of us. <laughs> then bringing it back home then, overrated or underrated the ASX 200? I'd say the same again. I'd probably say this all the time, but again, like there's so much stimulus and there's so many good companies in Australia, which I'm sure we'll get to. If I was going to put my money anywhere, it would be in, in shares of companies, so underrated. Well, I'm glad that you said that, given that both you and Bryce and I here have dedicated our time and our working careers to investing. It would be worrying if you said you're actually going to put your money in property or something like that. (laughs) Hey, well, actually, funny you mentioned that. We actually settle on our first house next week. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Congrats. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) Very off-brand, but still very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll get to that in a minute, I'm sure. So you mentioned the stimulus that we're seeing around the world. So we'll ask over. Overrated or underrated, the Federal Reserve's response to COVID-19? I mean, I'm not much of a macro thinker, but I'd say underrated. I mean, I think that's going to have a huge impact, (laughs) just enormous amounts of money. With interest rates so low, it's going to inflate asset prices, in my opinion. Mm. Speaking of assets, overrated or underrated, Bitcoin? Oh, I'd say overrated. I'm not a crypto guy, you could say, but yeah, I probably it's probably one of those where I should be sitting on the fence because I don't know enough about it. But yeah, I'd say overrated. So another asset class that has done very well in this recent COVID period is well, all precious metals, but we'll ask you specifically about gold. So overrated or underrated gold? I'd say way overrated. I think, you know, there's been some people recently noting that Buffett, for example, has bought mm. shares in a gold company and mm. they've taken that to mean that he thinks gold is a good investment. You don't have to know that it, like a, a product is actually worthwhile to make money from the company that provides it. So a good example would be Blackmores here in Australia. Like, I honestly, I don't think their vitamins have any efficacy, but it's just like good for you vitamins. And um, <laughs> that doesn't mean that like the the business is brilliant, right? But the actual things that they sell doesn't necessarily mean that they're um, mm. they're not necessarily good for you. But I think people making the distinction that gold is suddenly good because Buffett's buying it is a little bit um, hypey for me. And just the metal costs you money to store rather than paying you a dividend. So that's another thing. Mm. That attitude of buying a company, even if the products they sell are terrible, is Bryce's approach to tobacco companies? <laughs> <laughs> Not true. <laughs> well, I, this is funny, guys, because I read an article from Morgan Housel, who, when he w- worked at the Motley Fool about four or five years ago, 
And he went back and looked at the best performing company over 100 years, and it was a tobacco company. Mm. Even though there's all these rules and regulations, you know, it kind of proves that idea that, hey, even if it's like bad, it can still make a lot of money. Wow. Overrated or underrated the wax stocks here in Australia? So you've got WiseTech, Apen, Afterpay, Altium, Altium Zero. and Zero. Good and bad in there. So I'd say about right. Like I think some of those companies... For example, WiseTech, I'm not in love with. Afterpay is pretty much the same. But some of the other names, like Appen, is a really interesting business, and I own shares in Zero, so I've got to, I've got to wave the flag for that one. Nice. What did you think of Altium's recent earnings report, where the CEO started using cricket analogies, talking <laughs> yeah. about needing to take 20 wickets yeah. and all of that? I was like, is this Justin Langer or what? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to admit, there's been some really interesting things coming out of reporting season. Some crazy things. You know, I just think these businesses. Are pretty resilient so cricket analogies or not i think it's um i think it's a pretty good business mm. so last one and this will be pretty close to your heart given you're just settling on a property overrated or underrated the australian residential property market oh overrated i mean there's markets within markets but if i'm going to give you a high conviction answer and i had to go one way or the other i'd say overrated mm. we didn't buy the property like i would consider what you call an investment grade property so i think it's going to make us money but at the same time i don't see property as kind of like a wealth creator in itself it's just benefited from easy money and inflation and all that mm. in wages so mm. yeah overrated i'd say Nice. Well, Owen, before we jump into reporting season and some of the small cap work that you've been doing, we want to just touch on your background a little. We love hearing the story of everyone's first investment. So are you able to share yours and perhaps any of the major lessons that you learned from it? Yes, right. Sure. Um, so the first company I bought shares in was NAB. I created a brokerage account and I looked around at all the things and thought of all the companies that I knew. And I started plugging that into my, it was at the time it was CMC Markets account, putting in Apple, Google, Facebook, well, that came a bit later, but like all these companies that you know, you know and use every day. And then I realized none of them were showing up. So I'm like, oh, well, maybe there's like an, maybe this isn't like the place to buy those things. Cause I didn't realize you have to have two like kind of separate accounts sometimes. Yeah. And I ended up buying NAB shares and it didn't really like <laughs> do anything. It kind of just sat there for about a year. But there are two other examples I just want to quickly touch on. One was Nearmap. Back when I was like probably two years into my investing, maybe three years in, I put about five to $10,000, which was a lot of money for me at the time, into Nearmap, about 50 cents. And then I sold it. I reckon it would have been like a year later for the, the same price or maybe even less. But then you fast forward, you know, five years or maybe five to 10 years now, mm. and it's the $2.50. Mm. So I got bored with it, and that's why I sold it, which is a crazy thing to say now. And the second one was a company called LNG Limited, which I led to believe went to administration about three months ago or so. I bought two and a half grand of this company when I didn't know what I was doing, and I bought it below 30 cents. And then it, I sold it about 14 months later for $4.50. Wow. So, wow. so I made about Stunt. 20 grand out of this thing. <laughs> so the lesson my, is don't know the companies you're investing in. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I, this is what happened, right? I went in, I got some research from this, this broking house and I went for the name that looked like it had like the most discount to the analyst price target. So like we all know how conflicted that is nowadays, but like it was like 30 cents and I had like 60 cents price tag. I'm like, wow, that's like a hundred percent. That's easy money. Anyway, it got swept up in all this hype. So I just got lucky on that. And then I got way too confident. I started trading options and, and warrants <laughs> and all this weird stuff. And then I ended up probably losing all that money that I had in. So it was probably a bad thing for me early on in my investing career. Yeah, nice. So from those early investments to now, have you developed a personal investing philosophy that you apply when you're investing personally? 
Yeah, totally. So I spend a lot of time on this. As you guys are privy to the, I guess, the investing processes of other people, you spend a lot of time around them and you can think of ways that you can apply that yourself. And I've been constantly refining this. I'll send these ideas to you so you guys can put them in the show notes for listeners. But there's basically 10 rules that we've come up with at our company, Rask Australia, and I'll just rattle them off. The first one is capitalism works. So the reason why it works is that companies and, and entrepreneurs create value for society because they solve problems. And the shareholders that support people to do that should be rewarded. So you should be finding companies that are just solving problems and, and try to make money from that. Second one is the stock market is a vehicle for transferring the wealth from the impatient to the patient. You guys would probably be familiar with that from Warren Buffett. Mm. Third one is I believe that investing can be summed up in two words, and that's accumulate assets. So not like buy low, sell high, but just buy and buy again. And I think that's a really important distinction for people because we're taught from such a young age, buy low, sell high. But what about if you just buy low and then buy again and buy again? If it's a good asset, don't sell it. Number four would be fewer investment decisions often result in better decisions. Mm. And I've found, and we did this as a study when I was at Zenith, the fund managers that had fewer positions in their portfolio tended to outperform those that had more. Um, and when I say more, more than 30 positions, they tended to do 2 or 3% better every year over a five-year period. So that's quite meaningful over a long period of time. Number five, I think diversification is really important for beginners. And if you're like, you've got index funds and, and that type of thing in your portfolio, that's why you would have them there, I think, for diversification. But number six would be that for professionals and people who kind of know what they're doing, the evidence would suggest that after, say, 10 or 20 individual positions, the benefits of diversification go away. So I try and structure my own portfolios, a really high conviction portfolio. So I'm prepared to put a lot of money measured in percentages of my portfolio into an individual position if I think it's a good business. And I think that's where I differ significantly from most people because I would be prepared to put a lot of my money in, in an individual position. Number seven, and this is an interesting one, which I'm, you've, I'm guessing you've covered off with the listeners sometime or spoken about it, is that less than 5% of companies on the stock market are responsible for all of the stock market's excess return. So that was from a study for, um, from Bessenbinder, and it's been repeated a few times, and it shows that there's a very small cohort of companies that produce extraordinary returns, but then the vast majority, 95%, in fact, just average or worse. So if you think about that, you've got to be really picky. Number eight would be that there are three investing edges, uh, one being behavior, another one being analytical ability, and one be, the final one would be information. And so what I mean by an edge is like, if we all do the average thing, we're all going to get average results. So you've got to do something different. And what we found is that typically there are three ways that you can do better. If you behave better, if you have you know superior analytical ability, or if you have better information, you, know, you hear of high-frequency traders and, and that type of thing. And number nine would be most people, this is going to be a shocker for you guys, might be controversial, is I think most people shouldn't invest in individual shares, especially those who lack the time and the inclination or curiosity. Because I think the secret to investing well is curiosity and time. And if you don't have time, there are other ways you can invest, like index funds, ETFs, et cetera, and maybe a few individual shares here and there. But if you're starting out, perhaps, like the very beginning, you'd be wise to, I think, diversify a bit, take your time, and really ask yourself if you are curious enough to learn about investing. You know, we spoke about it at the top of the show. You get kicked off the horse a few times, right? Mm. So you've got to have the curiosity and the willingness to get back up on it again and go around. The number 10 would be you don't have to make a decision. You don't have to choose between being an active investor and picking individual shares or being a passive investor and investing in index funds. I know I speak to Vanguard and the guys from Beta Shares all the time, and they're doing great things for people because it, they're making it easier for people to invest well. And it's like that the little girl on the 
the tortilla or the taco ad who's i can't <laughs> i can't remember the spanish right where they're like you know, where she's like, you want the hard shell or like the the the, uh, the flat Soft one? Shell. Why um, can't we have both? Yeah. <laughs> Why can't we have both? And we, that's it, right? Like we we can. And people, this is what you call a false choice. And people kind of like they wave the flag for that whatever the company they're working for or whatever at any point in time. But the reality is, you don't have to choose. You can do both. So like, I've got ETFs and I've got index funds and I've got shares. I've got it all. I just accumulate. So I know this has gone on for a while, guys, but I just want to sum this up with five things that we look for when we're looking at individual shares. Number one, the company must have a competitive advantage. Number two, management must be aligned. Like if, if someone was going to invest in my business or I was going to invest in your business, I'd want to make sure that you guys you know, own shares in the company you run and are aligned with me for the long term. Number three is that it must be within our circle of competence. So you'd never see myself or anyone in my team make a recommendation to invest in like a resources share or a biotech because we just don't have expertise in that field. Maybe if you're like a, a doctor, you might invest in those types of businesses like a biotech, but we're definitely not going to do that. Number four is the business must operate in a growing industry or at least one that's like structurally important. So a good example of that would be like cloud stocks, which I'm, I'm sure we'll mention a few of them, but companies that are involved in like the cloud and remote working, we think that's a huge industry. And so we want to be invested in that. And the fifth one, which is a bit different, but also important, is that we, we also want to make sure that the businesses that we invest in are reasonably valued. So we're not bargain hunters. We're not looking for to buy Woolworths on the dip, but we do need to have kind of a sanity check in there. That's the one. That's a lot to take in, guys. All of that stuff is a lot to take in. So I'll, I'll, put, I'll send you a note so you can maybe include it. Yeah, in definitely. Because there's so much in there to unpack. It could be an episode in itself. I think that's great, though. Like all of those points really resonated and I think they're all really important. And it, it probably gets to a, a broader point that your investing philosophy doesn't need to be you know, a pithy six-word slogan that, that encapsulates everything. Like investing is complex and it's a lifelong journey of, of refining and learning. And I think we'll definitely include that in the show notes because there's a lot there that I think a lot of people should really think about and take in and, uh, and apply to, to their own investing philosophies. Totally. I think with investing, there's a book that I'll recommend to your listeners, which is Investing in the Last Liberal Arts by Robert G. Hagstrom. And uh, he suggests that you should think about the share market, and this is very philosophical, by the way, as kind of like a, a biological thing. So through the, through the lens of a scientist or someone like that who thinks about an organism that grows and moves over time. So for example, the stock market today is very different to the stock market 10 years ago. It's very different to 100 years ago. And that's because it's constantly evolving. And what I see with investors, and particularly really good investors, you might see investors that have a really good five-year track record or a 10-year track record, but then in five or 10 years from now, they're actually real, they've got a really poor track record. And I think that comes from their inability to adapt to different environments and to different companies and different opportunities. And I think if you kind of take it as you know, you're being flexible in your philosophy and you're willing to change when you think it needs to change, then I think you're going to have a better time investing really well over a long period of time. Yeah, for sure. Now, Owen, we are obviously in the middle of reporting season. We're recording on Friday, the 21st of August. A number of ASX companies have reported as well as a number of companies reporting quarterly results overseas. So I guess we'll start at a high level. We're obviously seeing a lot of earnings results being impacted by COVID and companies talking about what that has meant to their businesses. So how are you thinking about this reporting season and uh, what are maybe some of the things that you've learned and that you're applying to your investing strategy? Really good question. And it's just 
I love that we can talk about this now because I think last time I was on the show, it was like the depth of this, like the COVID crash, if you call it that. Yeah, that, that was, exa- yeah, we were calling people just to try and understand what the hell was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was great. And that's the the right way to think about it is to just hear from people and, and get some of the, I guess, opinions under a lot of uncertainty. And to answer your question, Ren, like my strategy has not changed from, you know, from the 30,000 foot view, it has not changed. You know, what I think is important is that people need to understand that when you invest in the share market, you're investing in something that is in the future. So what I mean by that is you get the future profits and the future cash flows of that business. That's what you get. And sure, you know, one year might change or two years might change, you know, what happens to the cash flow of a company. But I'm sure you guys are well aware of this. When you discount uh, profits back from the future or, or cash flows, what you find is that over a very long period of time, any one individual year tends not to have a great impact on the valuation of a company. You know, you just forecast as you go. But I haven't changed any of it. The one thing that I would say in ASX reporting season in particular is that it's become obvious that many companies in Australia, whether they are small businesses like mine or they're multi-billion dollar businesses like BHP or what have you, many of them have benefited from stimulus. So when you are looking at results, even overseas to extent companies like Apple, for example, what you can find is that some of those companies have kind of artificial cash flows. So they're being propped up by, by government stimulus, JobKeeper here in Australia. That can impact your valuations. Now, I'm not saying that's a big deal, but some companies aren't telling us whether they've benefited from those from the free money or whether they haven't or what kind of stimulus they've received. I think bigger picture, the idea of investing in great businesses is still just as relevant today as it was three months ago. Yeah, it's going to be interesting when uh, these businesses try to cycle the numbers next year, particularly some of the retail businesses. I mean, you yeah. think about Coles and Woolies and the, the ridiculousness of the numbers that they're pumping out, trying to cycle that again through to next year will be very interesting. But Owen, is there anything that's really surprised you this reporting season? And I guess the follow-on for that is what have you been looking for from businesses who have been reporting given what's been going on? Great question. I think the the waters are also muddied for bigger companies like, say, Woolies and Coles because of changes to leasing and accounting standards yeah. this, this year, which has had a significant impact um, on how we calculate things like cash flows and, and, and debt. And so I think what has surprised me is just how bad some of the poor quality companies have performed. So companies with like um, what I would say by by poor quality or low quality is, is a business that has really narrow margins, so they're not really able to you know weather a marginal impact. So let's use an example. Let's say like Woolworths, if it can earn five percent profit margins, versus a company that's like a, a technology company that earns like a thirty percent profit margin. What you find is even if revenue falls a little bit, if your business is only earning five percent margins because it's got high fixed costs or what have you. That fall in revenue can actually have a severe impact on the margin and the 5% can effectively disappear versus a company that's more nimble and has wider margins that can sustain that and still be profitable and not need to raise capital and, and that type of thing. So I was pretty blown away by how many companies needed to raise capital here in Australia. Yeah. But other than that, I'd say the other thing that surprised me is how quickly the market has responded to pushing up the prices of really good companies and just hammering those that are actually really low quality with lots of debt, thin margins, those types of things. And that, I thought when we spoke last time, I thought I had more time to act. I had about 30 companies on my watch list that a few analysts and I were going through. And we thought, you know, well, we've still got time to buy this. We haven't got enough clarity on that. So we're going to wait 
And by the time we waited on a lot of those opportunities, they'd just flown away. We were at all-time um, highs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Like a good example would be EML Payments, which is the ASX-listed payments or kind of like fintech company. We were looking at that when it was just getting smoked and we're thinking, we could just put a lot of money into this and we'd probably make money, but we don't know for sure, so we'll hold off. And then by the time we got that clarity, it had already just flown away. But the thing in particular, Bryce, the thing that I'm really looking for and the thing that I was looking for then is the adoption curve for technology companies. So if your listeners are familiar with an adoption curve, it kind of looks like a bell shape and it represents, I guess, how fast the people in society and the businesses adopt new ways of doing things. So a good example would be, you know, in the very early days, Afterpay was only used by like people that were really focused on like fashion or or those types of online businesses. But now it's used by everyone and that's what we would call the majority. And so what you want to find is companies at the beginning of that journey when they're only the early adopters are using it. And typically those are people like engineers or like people that are like, you know, influencers really up to date with the latest tech and, and what have you. But what we've found as a result of COVID is it's brought forward all of the adoption. So a good example here would be Microsoft when they came out and reported, I think it was their oh, March quarter, I'm going to say, they said that they had five years of demand for their cloud technologies like Microsoft 365 and all that in one quarter. So five years of demand brought forward into one quarter. And that's incredible when you think about it. Another company that I own is called Okta. It does online security uh, for cloud-connected devices. And it said the same thing. We've had five years of demand in brought into one year. And I think that's incredible because... These companies have always been there, but it's taken something like this to push all that forward. And we're still looking for that. We're seeing it in less obvious places now. So it's not just Microsoft and Apple and all that. There's actually other businesses that are benefiting from this. So that's what we're looking at now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. So Owen, at this point, we've covered off your personal investing philosophy and some of your thoughts on the recent reporting season. Now we're really keen to get stuck into the work you're doing in the small cap space. We've been watching from afar as you launched your Rask Rocket service, yes, uh, pun intended there. And <laughs> we're really interested to really unpack what you're doing and to, to get some of your insights around the small cap space because there's a lot of interest in that space and there's a lot of interesting companies that you're looking at. But I guess if we start at a high level for people who 
maybe aren't too familiar with the small cap space, haven't really dabbled at that end of the market. Can you tell us why you find the small cap space so appealing? Yeah, sure. So I want to put a caveat or a disclaimer on this to say that when you get further down the market, you often find people who are willing to trade individual positions and then talk about them on social media or other places. And it can become pretty murky. You know, you don't know where incentives lie. So just be warned that I'm investing in these companies, but I'm a long-term investor. I'm not looking to hype anything or say how fantastic any individual company is. But for me, small caps are a great place to invest because one, this is really important, there's often little or no analyst coverage of the companies. Mm. So if you were to go to, say, the Wall Street Journal website or you would go, you'll go to Bloomberg or wherever you go to get your information and there's analyst notes there, what you'll find is that a company like CBA, so Commonwealth Bank of Australia, would have between 20 and 80 analysts covering it at any one time. And so what insight I get on Commonwealth Bank versus you know, the other 79 is probably not going to be that meaningful. So, you know, they probably found it before or, you know, they've spoken to management and got a different insight. So, again, this comes back to doing something a little bit different and not just being the average investor, I guess. And so small caps are good because if there's no analysts covering them, then the chances of you finding something, a piece of information or a little edge that you get can often just be yours. And that's a great thing because then you can build a thesis or build an investment strategy around that and, and you can hold on and wait for that to play out. The second thing is that access to management is a lot easier. So for someone like myself or even any of your listeners, if you if you want to find out who's running your company, you can't just go to CBA and say, hey, Matt Common, who's the current CEO, can you just respond <laughs> to this short email? I've got three questions for you. Because it, it's like, you know, there would be 30 people between you and him receiving that email. But if you go to the small companies on the ASX, and what we mean by small companies is anything less than, say, I don't know, 200 to 250 million. Everyone's definition of what is a small cap varies. But I'd say less than 250 million for a small company. If you go to the ASX announcements for those companies, chances are there's actually an email address on there. And half the time it is the CEO or it's like the CEO's assistant or whatever. And you can just email that person and just be like, hey, I'm looking to speak to blah, 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 blah. Can you put me in touch? Or here's a question I have. And the reason this is so important is because Many people tend to forget there's actually a business behind a, a, a ticker symbol. And if you want to get the best possible clarity on what the business does, it's so easy just to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Just speak to the manager and, and hear it from them. Fully prepared for that interview though, or that conversation because CEOs are typically the best salesmen or yeah. saleswomen. Mm. So you, you've got to understand that they're looking to sell you on it. So that's one thing. The third one that I'd bring up is, and it's pretty obvious, is that People talk about upside in small companies. So um, if you're investing in Commonwealth Bank of Australia, it's a $100 billion company, let's say. It's dominating in Australia. It's not going to expand overseas because it has no competitive advantage overseas. So your upside is pretty much what it can grow at, which would probably be a little bit more than, than GDP plus a dividend. But if you go down the small end of the market, there might be a company that's coming up with some new product or service, or it could already dominate its industry, but it's a very small industry. and Now it's starting to branch out. And so you could get a company that, for example, is really good at something here in Victoria, but hasn't expanded into New South Wales or South Australia or wherever yet, and it's, and it's planning to do that. That's just a, a hypothetical example, but it gives you an understanding of it. The next thing is that, and this is a crucial insight, guys, and I think you, you guys are on the same kind of uh, train here with me, is that people often confuse volatility with risk. Mm. And so 
what I mean by that is when you see the share prices bubbling up and down or sometimes bouncing up and down, people sometimes think, you know, I'm down 5% today. Well, no, you're not. That's just what we call volatility. The actual risk of owning shares in a company over the long term is that the company itself, something happens to it. And what, what you find is small caps, for example, one of the small caps that we had in our rocket service, it actually went up something like 35% in the week before we released the research. Huh. And, then, and then the day before, it fell like 25% for no reason. There was no news. It was just a random thing that happened. But people would have been so scared off by that. But we were like, oh, yeah, it's, no, it's still fine. It's, it's been no announcement. And everything seems to be fine. And so people tend to confuse that volatility and uncertainty with what is actually risky. And that what's risky to a small company is things like if it's a really fragile business model, if it's not yet cash flow positive, you know, if it's in a space that you don't really understand, you probably shouldn't be going anywhere. So these are just some of the reasons. But one of the risky things about small caps is that, well, there's a few actually. First is that management teams can be dodgy and, and just self-serving. So you need to know where their incentives lie and be really critical of them. I read a company announcement from a buy now, pay later small cap. And they said their market opportunity was $4.5 trillion. <laughs> <laughs> that's bigger than the, like, that's two and a half Australia's. You know? yeah. so, <laughs> so like, I don't get that. And so you see these promotional management teams and then just out there to sucker people in because they want a higher share price so they can do their capital raisings, get their bonuses, et cetera. So I'd say stick to profitable companies, Stay away from industries you don't understand. For me, that's like biotech and resources. And focus on companies that have positive cash flow for starters. Then dive into like your deeper research and go from there. So speaking of research, you've recently written an article that listed 10 ASX-listed software companies under a billion dollars. And we're interested in hearing a couple of the ones on that list that are tickling your fancy. But I was interested to start with, what is it about software companies that led you to, I guess, curate a list of 10 and go down that path? That's a good question. This is just kind of like a mini series I did. I wanted to, we got our hands on a whole heap of data of companies throughout Australia. And I wanted to go through the list and find companies that are specifically in the software and technology industries, because I think that they have the best chance of going on to return multiples of our money. And I'll get to why in just a moment. But if I could zoom out and then we'll zoom in. The, the first thing that you want to understand about any business is what's the best way to measure success. And I think the best way to measure success of most businesses, so not individual not shares on the share market, but businesses, so the things underneath them is to focus on a metric called return on invested capital, or ROIC for short. And what this measures is it's the amount of money or the return that you get or a company gets for every dollar that's invested in it. And so that's the debt that it has on its balance sheet or takes it out from the bank. It's the equity, the shareholders' money that was first invested, and it's cash and all that type of thing that's on its balance sheet. So we compare with ROIC, we compare the profit to the amount of money invested. And a really good way to spin this for people that aren't like accounting nerds like myself is to imagine I put an empty tissue box in front of you. And then I say, you've got to put $100 in there. You've got to invest $100 into this empty tissue box. And then you come back a year later, right? And then magically, this little tissue box spits out a pineapple. So 50 bucks. It just, a $50 note just comes flying out of that thing, right? <laughs> now, what you actually have done there is you've got a return on investment of $50 or 50%. So we would say that's a return on invested capital of 50%. And at any time, whenever you have money, it doesn't matter if it's shares or if it's property or whatever, you've got to think of everything as its own little cash box. Money goes in, 
money comes out, right? Now, the difference is with the share market and individual businesses is that they're their own little cash box. So every company has its own little cash box. It's got debt inside it. It's got their own cash on the balance sheet. And then its business is making money and returning money to its own balance sheet. So that's what we measure when we're talking about return on invested capital. Now, this is a really impressive business. If you could put $100 into this tissue box and get $50 out, that's a 50% return in one year. There are not many places in the world where you can put $100 and get $50 out each and every year. But the share market is one of those places. Now, when I say you get that out, in this example, you know, this is the company putting money into their projects and getting the money out. So you as a shareholder don't see that every year. That would be a dividend. That's something different. But you're seeing the business compound what it has inside it already. Now, there are some examples here in Australia where businesses have achieved more than 50%. So a good example would be LaVisa. Before COVID, of course, it was that fast fashion retail store you'd see in every Westfield shopping center across the country just about. And what LaVisa actually did was when it put out a new store in every shopping center, it had a return on invested capital of over 100% per store. That's almost unheard of. The reason people don't notice that is because they don't actually dive into the numbers and speak to management. But what that actually means is, let's say it costs $250,000 to put a LaVisa store with some employees in a Westfield shopping center near you. After a year, that store has made, after the costs and everything, more than the $250,000. So that's why the return on invested capital is over 100%. And LaVisa did that for a few years and hence why its share price went like five times higher in about five years. So if I was going to focus on one thing, I'd say focus on that return on invested capital. Not all of your brokerage accounts. Sometimes you have to sign up for things like Morningstar to get that information, but or you can just calculate it yourself, which takes a bit of time, but that's something you can look for. Now, speaking of Morningstar, and this is how it relates to software, Morningstar is probably the best source for understanding their return on invested capital and understanding what are competitive advantages. So the reason that some businesses do better than others and can re- return high amounts of capital over time. But what they did, there was a study that they did a while ago, is they did a a study of every industry that they followed, so which was every industry. And they said, okay, how many companies in this industry have what we call a wide moat, which is the best type of competitive advantage, and therefore, you know, the highest returns are expected from that company. How many of those companies in that industry have a narrow moat, which is like a good moat, it's not the, the best moat, but it's kind of in between. And how many companies have no moat at all? meaning that their return on invested capital isn't really good enough to invest in right now. And what they found was that the three best industries for wide moat companies were defensive businesses, consumer defensive businesses, so things like Costco, Woolworths and and Coles would probably be a good example here in Australia. Another one was healthcare, which is things like CSL and a company I'm about to get to. And the technology industry is a kind of like a broad industry, which would be a company like Xero, which we spoke about. The worst industries were real estate and materials or resources. Um, then the third one was communication services like telecoms. So what do real estates, uh, real estate companies, mining companies, and telecoms like Telstra have in common? They're all really capital intensive. So you put money in, instead of putting $100 in, Telstra might put like $10 billion in to create a 5G network. And then even once it builds that, then Optus is caught up and TPG Telecom is there too, by the way. So hey, You can't just charge what you want because we're all going to compete away your margins. And so what I look for in software is companies that don't require that amount of capital. So their software is able to be rolled out again and again and again. Are you guys old enough to remember Con the Fruiterer? 
Mm. Uh, that doesn't ring a bell. No. Okay, so this is an old skit, right? Con the Fruiter was this old guy with a filthy mustache and he'd wear like an apron and he ran a fruit shop. And software is so good, right? Because every time you create a piece of software, you don't have to create another version of it to sell it to the next customer. So that means you don't have to put another $100 in to get another $50 out. So the way I thought about this and describing it to your listeners is Con the Fruiter, who's this dodgy fruit shop owner, he buys an apple for a dollar to sell onto his customers. But let's say his dollar, which is what he has to invest to get the, the product, he then sells that apple for $2, right? So he would make a pretty good return on, in, on his investment in that apple. However, with software, he could sell that one apple a thousand times because it doesn't matter, and you probably are familiar with this from Microsoft's example, it doesn't matter how many times you sell the software, you can just keep selling it again and again and again and again, and it doesn't cost you any more money. And that is what leads to huge amounts of return on invested capital. And the other two things that I'd mentioned about software is, one, it's super sticky. So once you install a piece of software or a business installs a piece of software, they're not just going to rip it out. Number two, software is typically unique. Like if I sit down here and code something that creates something wonderful, I can then go and sell that online to companies who would use that software. But I can sell it again and again and again, just like before. And it's my code. You know, I've written it. If they want to go and do it themselves, sure, but it's mine, so it's here and it's available. So those that's a really roundabout way to describe why I focus on this industry, but it gives you a sense of what's so appealing about it. I like the explanation of things that are, you know, infinitely scalable, just like podcasting. You create one <laughs> podcast, can be listened to all over the world. So looking forward to seeing some small cap podcasting businesses get listed in the future. Well, who knows? Maybe Equity Mate Limited becomes a billion dollar company uh, on the ISS. <laughs> well, let's just say if Rask Media ever goes public, we would expect to be in that pre-IPO round. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I feel like you'd be look, looking at the financials thinking, oh, geez. Well, we love that description of software businesses, but your recent Rask Rockets thing has been broader than that. You picked, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but you picked 10 ASX listed small caps and gave them to Rask Rockets subscribers. You were telling us before, some have really popped recently. One, I think, has seven bagged since you, you told it to members. So you've obviously uh, done some work and picked some good stocks there. Without giving away any of the ones that you've kept secret and kept for members, can you tell us about that service and uh, maybe some of the companies that you picked and, and why you picked them? Yeah, sure. So not quite a seven-bagger. Not far off it, though, Ren, mm -hmm. but people can Google Rask Rockets performance. And our actually, there's a public version of our performance. It updates every 20 minutes on our website. So um, you won't see the names of the companies, but you can see you know how our returns are, and I think that adds transparency. One of the companies that we did share with the public, which was included in that 10, which I'm happy to talk about, is a company called Volpara Health Technologies. So it's listed on the stock exchange. It was the biggest one of our, of our 10 and, you know, I always get a bit funny when I talk my own book because I don't want people to take this the wrong way. Like I'm not boasting or, or I'm not telling you to go out and invest in this right away, but it's just an interesting business and it gives you a sense of what I look for. The journey for Volpara really started in the late 90s, early 2000s when a guy who was doing his PhD at Oxford teamed up with his professor at the time. And they realized that like he was a mathematician. He's actually, his name's Ralph Heinem, and he, he's actually a mathematician and he's super bright. And he realized he had to do his PhD thesis on something. So what he chose to do, because he couldn't really find ideas, was focus on breasts and in particular, I should say, breast cancer. 
And so he found that people were developing breast tissue or dense breast tissue. And what he found was that the current methods for assessing women who have early stage breast cancer or even late stage breast cancer was just so inadequate. It was unbelievable. But we have to fast forward about 10 years because he went off and created another business, which he sold. And then he finally got back to this thing called Volpara, which at the time had a different name. But what he did was he sat down and, you know, he's obviously very intelligent, mathematically minded physics and that type of thing. He came up with a way for companies to do a typical mammogram of a breast and then use mathematics to effectively determine whether that woman had a, a dense breast or a non-dense breast and then determine if they're, you know, their risk of getting breast cancer. And this is unbelievable stuff. And it's crazy to think that some radiologist clinics around the world still haven't adopted this. But what it does is it effectively goes beyond just giving people a score from a manual exam and it tells them more about their breasts and it helps save lives at the end of the day. And this software that he's since created now has been sold to many, many different hospitals and, and radiologist clinics throughout Australia, New Zealand, and particularly the USA. The great thing about this software from a capitalist point of view is that once this software is installed at a hospital, for example, it requires some, you know, some integrations and, and what have you. But once it's installed and the, the radiologists are using it and the doctors are using it to assess patients, they're not going to pull that software out of the hospital because it's proven that it actually works. There's numerous patents, there's numerous studies that have been done peer-reviewed that proves that breast density scanning and, and measurement actually has a really positive impact on the, the hospitals because it results in fewer women getting called back for a, a procedure that can be quite invasive and, and quite uncomfortable. And it also results in breast cancers getting detected early. So it, it's kind of like this win-win for everyone. The hospitals save money. The woman gets to find out, you know, what's her risk and ultimately potentially save people's lives. And Volpara puts its software in. And every time someone is scanned and someone gets a breast density report, they get a tiny little fee. So if you think about that, a business like that starts off a very much a loss-making business. But after five years, after 10 years, after 15 years, if it's getting paid for every exam that goes through, it begins to just layer on top more and more money. Meanwhile, the software, if we go back to our Conda Fruiterer example with the Apple software, hasn't necessarily need to be rewritten again and again or sold again and again. It just sits there and it makes money. It's effectively a cash machine. And so that's a really good example of a business that we chose for the rocket service because we're looking for smaller companies that we can hold on to for five to 10 years. You know, my minimum time frame for any of the companies is five years, but I would ideally like to hold them for 10 years. And one of the companies that you, you mentioned there in was a very small company. So it had a market cap when we, when we recommended it of around about $40 million. So that's tiny. Hey. It had seven staff. So, wow. I mean, <laughs> that gives you an idea of how small these companies are, but that does not mean that they're, you know, not very impressive. Like that story about Volpara gives you a sense. This company has been 20 years in the making and it's only now starting to take off. And so, you know, these are really interesting businesses for your listeners' sake. Unfortunately, we've closed that program. We only take a certain number of investors every year, but that's just one of the companies. It's also in our other service, which is called um, Rask Invest, which focuses on slightly larger companies. But again, that's kind of what we look for and that's the, that's the type of business we're trying to find every day. Nice. So when can we expect a Rask Rockets LIC? <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I feel like um, there might be a few eyebrows raised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would, that would be in time. But 
I don't know about that one, but maybe there is a managed fund in the works a few years from now. Okay. But um, at the moment, I'm still I'm very happy just to have you know a research business where I help people invest and they can choose to take our research or not. And yeah, it's worked out well for them and for us. Well, speaking of Owen, uh, before we move to our final three questions, you do have a number of fantastic offers available through Rask. You you cover off a lot and. You are generous enough to offer the Equity Mates community some pretty significant discounts on the programs that you do offer. So I'll just run through them now. As you mentioned, there's the Value Investor Program, which is your sort of flagship online course. Mm-hmm. For Equity Mates listeners, you're offering 200 bucks off, which is massive. So I'm assuming that comes down to 599 for the course. Yep, that's is right. Is that correct? Yep. So that's a complete training for stock market investors. Highly recommend you guys going and checking that out. Additionally, if you're interested in all of the research that Owen and his team are doing, there's Rask Invest, which Owen just mentioned. It's this subscription service and Owen's offering $100 off that for the first six months. And that's their best uh, research members only community. Additionally, there's Rask ETFs, which is an investment subscription as well, with a a focus obviously on ETF research for Aussies Mm. looking to get more info in that space, which I can imagine will be pretty popular 50 bucks off that for the first six months so some really awesome offers there and i mean we wouldn't be talking about these if you know we didn't back in what you guys are doing over at ross so fantastic opportunity for the equity mates listeners head to www.rask.com.au slash affiliates slash equity mates with a hyphen mm-hmm. we will put all of that in the show notes for you to make it easy just to click through and check that out but yeah i think thank you owen for making that available to the equity mates community and we encourage you to go check that out yeah no worries i, sh- I should have said at the top of the show guys like it's funny because i i didn't grow up with finance or investing but you know i didn't come from a wealthy background or anything like that and um money was always a point of anxiety for me and to think that i'm now an investor is just wild but the big focus for us has been educating people, and as it is for you guys. This is a huge opportunity for people to do good things. And yeah, even if people don't take up our paid services, we've got courses and we want to enroll 10,000 new students over the next year into our free courses. So yeah, I mean, we don't make money from that, but I just wanted to put that out there. And we should also say, this was the thing that we prepared five minutes before. <laughs> yeah, so we didn't come onto this podcast intending to do No, that, absolutely but, uh, not. <laughs> We're fast and loose We're over fast here. And loose. <laughs> just, just how I like it. Cool, before we get stuck into the final three questions, I guess the final thing is, as well as the courses uh, and the memberships that Bryce was just talking about, if people want to, well, if they want to listen to you, you've got two podcasts. I'll hand off to you in a second to give a spiel for, but also are you, uh, active on any social media where people can follow you if they want to hear more from you? Yes, sure. So we've got a very, very, very poor Instagram presence, which I hope that we'll fix up in time, but, um, which is funny because it's kind of like our target audience. Now I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Owen Rask. I, I am on Instagram at Owen Rask you, but seriously, like if you've got a message you want to send to me or just get in touch, use, use Twitter or send us an email because <laughs> I don't even know how to use it. sounds like I'm 50, but I don't know how to use Instagram. <laughs> um, well, you did ask us before, how old are we? And then reference a cultural thing that we didn't recognize. So I'm pretty sure we're the same age, aren't we? Yeah, I, I was confused by that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's like, I don't know, growing up with parents who watch these crazy whacked out shows. But, uh, I, uh, yeah, I'm 29. So I'm not, so I am. Like, oh, there you go. I'm 27. I'm the young one here. Absolutely uh, putting us to shame. But anyway. <laughs> so much wisdom. <laughs> yeah. 
and the two podcasts are the Australian Finance Podcast, which is great for beginners. It is an investing show, but it's not really like your guys, for example. You guys like have a really good focus on investing. It's more like holistic, you know, wealth and and finance and that type of thing. And then the Investors Podcast is similar to this, but different because it's mainly like fund managers that I speak to every day. I know you guys speak to fund managers too, but probably a little bit philosophical. Mm. But it's just catering for two markets, I guess, that kind of sophisticated investment philosophy and then the beginner stuff. But yeah, I mean, they're out there. They're not quite as highly ranked as uh, equity mates, but (laughs) I enjoy doing them. Yeah. And I mean, the great thing about the... Australian finance community that's building between, you know, what we're doing, what you're doing, and what a few other people are doing is that, you know, investing is a lifelong learning journey and knowledge compounds and all the different variants of the podcasts and the subscription services and stuff out there just build people's knowledge and uh, help people get smarter with their money. Yeah, well said. And you guys are doing a great job of it. So kudos. Thanks, Owen. Now, uh, we'll get into the final three questions that we like to end every interview with. So the first one here is, do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise. Yep. So I've got five. The first one, which I recommend to everyone, like if I walk past a dog in the street, I'd be like, hey, man, you got to stop and read this book. Uh, <laughs> it is that good. So it would be Factfulness, which oh, is yeah. Yeah, um, it was, yeah, written by a guy called Hans Rosling. Um, it's got very little to do with investing, although you could find some parallels, but it's got everything to do with everything. Mm-hmm. I think Bill Gates had it on his number one reading list for like forever. You know, Bill Gates is known to read between 10 and 15 books a week. So for him to have Factfulness as number one, it says something, but it's a brilliant book. For investing, The Gorilla Game, it's written by Jeffrey Moore, Johnson, and uh, Tom Kippola. It was written in like the 90s, I think 1990s, like 1997. It's about investing in technology companies. It's a really interesting one for those that are that way inclined. The next one is Investing, The Last Liberal Art, which is by Robert Hagstrom. Really interesting book, but it's about reading around investing and how that all kind of comes together, like how physics relates to investing and how I guess uh, writing relates to investing or how all these different things relate to investing. The, the easiest one to read on the topic of returns on invested capital that I've come across, you guys might have other ideas, is the little book that beats the market by Joel Greenblatt. Yeah, good book. Good book. It's a super easy book to read. Mm. And it just, it focuses on two things. It's, one is like high quality businesses. And the other thing is like how they generate returns. And, and there's a magic formula and all that sort of stuff there. And the last one, which is for the business people, the people that want to learn how companies actually generate returns. It's called The Outsiders by Will Thorne. Yeah, another great book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are my top five. I'll, I've got nice. some links there, so I'll share them with you. Awesome. Yeah, very, very good list of books. Kudos. I'll stop admiring that list and we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> so the next one is, what's your go-to source for investing and financial information? Well, obviously, equity, mates. <laughs> goes without good saying. answer. <laughs> yeah. No, like we have a few websites where we have contributors and that. So we've got our, our news site, which is RAS Media. But if you want to invest the way I invest, the best thing you can do is just read company financials. There's nothing like the actual source documents. Like even if you go, like we use Morningstar for data. And if, even if you go to Morningstar, I'd still, like I'd look at the financials, but then I'd still go back to where they got the numbers from to, to confirm and to, to do my own work. But I think, you know, if you had, uh, let's say you have like 90 days and you have a goal for the next 90 days, go and read one chairman and CEO introduction. So if you get an annual report, typically the chairman and the CEO's letter will be at the top and it pretty much most of them are like two pages each. So it's four pages of reading. If you read, like start at the top, the ASX 200, start with the top company and work your way down. If you read the chairman and CEO letter one a day for the next 90 days, you would know a little bit, little bit about the top 200 companies in the country, but you would know a lot more about business and investing. And I think that's a really good way to 
um, just round out your knowledge and kind of accumulate it over time as well. And then the last question, if you think back to your younger self when you, you, know, you were making your first investment in NAB, what advice would you have for your younger self? Now, this is a kind of an interesting one, right? Because I, I ask a very similar question when I interview people and it's, it just gets to the bottom of what's important. For me, it would be find and invest in really good people. And so what I mean by that is if you are investing, I find people that you know can teach you something and can help you along your journey. And because not only in investing, but like the connections that we make with other people in life are the most important thing that you can create. If you're investing, find five good investors and strengthen your connection with them. Follow their work. Do whatever you can to kind of emulate some of the success and hopefully it rubs off on you. Yeah, nice. Awesome, Owen. Well, fascinating conversation. We covered a lot there. So we will try and endeavor to put as much of that in the show notes as we can, particularly the links through to the affiliate programs for your services and the books and your top 10 tips. And there's a thousand things that we can put in there. So uh, (laughs) yeah, we'll ensure we cover that all on on our website as well. So awesome conversation. Thank you so much for your time today, Owen. And look, loving watching what you're doing over at Rask and look, we'll definitely be keeping in touch. So thank you. Yeah, awesome, fellas. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.